After last week's Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade, Democrats are calling for nationwide protests in which women twerk their asses and bare their breasts, making it impossible to tell the difference between Democrats and guys in strip clubs who are calling for the same thing. Congresswoman and curvy ignoramus Alexandria Occasional Cortex told a group of like-minded hysterics, quote, we must immediately take to the streets in violent opposition to duly appointed justices making well-reasoned legal decisions that we disagree with on completely fatuous grounds. If abortion laws have to be made by our elected representatives, women all across this country will be cruelly forced to convince their fellow citizens by using reason. And if you think that's going to happen, you haven't been watching The View, or for that matter, my Instagram videos, unquote. President and venal houseplant Joe Biden also weighed in on the court's decision, saying, quote, The question of Roe versus Wade really depends on whether you're in a boat or just splashing around the shallows with your pants rolled up. If these rowing and wading rights are denied to women, they'll be forced to swim out in the deeper waters, and it'll be like Jaws, where naked women get dragged back and forth by a mechanical shark until they're just a hand with a bunch of seaweed stuck on a lunch tray. Women must be allowed to have bathing suits, so at least before they're devoured by mechanical sharks, they can look like the hot girls in Sports Illustrated, although obviously it should be the old Sports Illustrated without the fat ones. Come on, man, what's that about? Unquote. While conservatives argue that controversial moral issues should be debated by legislators and not decreed by unelected judges, leftists make arguments like this one. My choice! My choice! My choice! My choice! That woman later changed her mind, however, after she was sprinkled with holy water. Then the demons came out of her and entered a herd of swine who plunged into the sea, leaving Democrats with a minority in the House of Representatives. Other leftists say they will begin preparing their reasonable arguments just as soon as they're finished vandalizing women's counseling centers and threatening the lives of Supreme Court justices. One feminist lawmaker, for instance, Mimi Screamy, sometimes known as Screaming Mimi, Mimi Screamy, or just Elizabeth Warren for short, said, quote, If women can't get abortions, they've been denied equal rights with men. After all, men can go around killing unborn children all they want, and not one thing will happen to them except life imprisonment. Plus, men can have sex without getting pregnant, unless they're transgender, and then men can get pregnant. But now they can't get an abortion, so men are being denied equal rights with women who can't get an abortion either, and so have exactly the same rights as men. In conclusion, men shouldn't make laws about women's bodies unless they have women's bodies and aren't men, but are men, and therefore shouldn't make laws about their own bodies, which are women's. Unquote. Already agitated by the prospect of having to use reasoned argument instead of emotionalism, riots, and threats of assassination, leftists were further disturbed by Supreme Court decisions allowing people to pray and carry guns. On Knucklehead Row, the op-ed page of the New York Times, a former newspaper, the editorial board of Knuckleheads wrote, quote, We now face living in a country where people can freely worship God and defend themselves and elect representatives to make their laws. This is not who we are. We're dishonest, racist authoritarians who slaughter babies and shake our naked asses at children before butchering their sexual organs in service to an academic theory that makes no sense and has no scientific backing. When you think about it, we really should be in prison. Instead, we're living privileged lives in the freest country that has ever existed on Earth and trying our best to get everyone to hate it. What the hell are we doing? God forgive us. We're so very, very sorry. Unquote. All right. It's possible I made that editorial up. But I can dream, can't I? Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. 
little hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, tipsy-topsy, the world is zippity-zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray, oh, hooray, hurrah. All right, we're back laughing our way through the fall of the Republic. We had a great night at the Ryman Theater this week with uh, Backstage Live. I think I must have shaken the hands of over 300 people. Uh, really sorry about the COVID. I might, maybe I should have stayed home. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want Josh from Legal to you know, have a heart attack and fall over. Uh, we had amazing announcements. Jordan Peterson is going to join us on our new Daily Wire Plus. Dennis Prager uh, is going to do more stuff for us there. It is really, really exciting. I know uh, that everyone and his mother is talking about abortion this week, but I have to, something to say that I have not heard anybody else say, and it is the reason uh, this decision means so much to me and why it struck me, as you uh, saw, uh, as powerfully as it did. And I want to tell you about that. I also have Dinesh D'Souza is going to come on and try to convince me that the election really was stolen. We will do that through mud wrestling, uh, possibly through civilized debate. I, I prefer mud wrestling. Also, I'll be talking to international film star and terrifying guy who cuts people's heads off, Nick Searcy, who will join us to discuss his role on Terror on the Prairie. I always love talking to Nick, and he's such a terrific actor. If you haven't seen Terror on the Prairie, I, he, he really is something on it. It's just a, it is a lot of fun to watch. This is a good time to subscribe. You know, we need you. We need your help. We need your support. Uh, all those people last night or whatever, whenever it was who were uh, thanking me, uh, you know, saying thanks for all you do. I kept saying to them, we don't do it if you guys don't uh you know, if you don't appreciate it and support it. So please subscribe. Also, of course, subscribe to this podcast. If you can do it on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review, very, very helpful to our ratings and all the things that come out of that. Uh, and subscribe to my personal YouTube channel, the Andrew Clavin channel, uh, where if you, we will give you exclusive, exclusive content there. And if you ring that little bell, uh, you'll hear this little tingling-a-ling. Uh, that means an angel uh, has gotten his wings and uh, possibly given up drinking as well. Uh, if you leave a comment and the comment is absolutely morally disgusting, we will read it on the show because that's what we do here. Uh, today's comment is from... I, I guess it's pronounced Cy Charmers 92. He says, or she says, I don't know which is sweeter, the sound of a newborn baby crying for the first time or the sound of liberals crying when they don't get their way. Uh, thanks to Dobbs v. Jackson, we'll be hearing a lot more of both from now on. Let us hope that would be a terrific thing. July 4th, it's coming. Two things you need. You need fireworks and you need American meat. This year, celebrate an American holiday with 100% American meat. Good Ranchers is the place to get American beef, chicken, and seafood for your July 4th barbecue. Did you know that over 85% of grass-fed beef sold in your local grocery store is imported from overseas? Stop paying a premium price for low-quality foreign meat. Get your meat at Good Ranchers like my family does. They deliver 100% American meat right to your door for a great price. And once you subscribe, your price is locked in for good, really good deal right now. Plus, right now, they're giving away two free ribeyes, $100 value, to my listeners through July 4th. Go to GoodRanchers.com slash Clavin and use my code Clavin to get two 18-ounce prime center-cut ribeyes free with your order. Hurry, the clock is ticking on your free ribeyes, while other places will charge you over 50 bucks per steak for ribeyes like these. Good Ranchers is giving two of them away for free. USDA Prime, 100% American, steakhouse quality, cuts of beef. Go to GoodRanchers.com slash Claim your ribeyes today 
before they run out. Stop spending exorbitant amounts of money on low-quality meat at the grocery store. Subscribe to Good Ranchers instead. You got to know how to spell Clavin. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no so even, even now, a new Supreme Court, this has been an amazing, amazing Supreme Court session. A new decision came in uh, this week, basically limiting uh, what, what the deep state can do, uh, saying that the EPA cannot just go ahead and make any rule that it wants. It was a little bit of a complex decision because the rules had already been abandoned, but it very much limited what these agencies can do without uh, congressional approval without basically legislation. And it limited, according to the legal, legal commentators, it's going to make it much harder for Joe Biden to just send out EOs, these executive orders, and, uh, you know, panic about climate change and destroy businesses and destroy uh, the coal and gas industries without basically getting legislation, which he's not going to get. So very, very good decision. But I got to go back. I know everyone has talked about this and is talking about it, but it's just so important. And I want to talk about uh, the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade just one more time to tell you what it means to me, who's not a lawyer, uh, who's not really even a, a political person, who's an artistic person, who cares about the culture of this country, because I think when we say that politics is downstream from culture, as Andrew Breitbart liked to say, uh, we don't mean that if you make a movie, then something's going to happen. And what we mean is that all these things, the way people behave, the way they think, the way their media uh, speaks to them, the way they speak to one another, the movies, the arts, all of those things create a, a soul of the country. That's what James Joyce, the novelist, said. It's the uncreated conscience uh, of, of the race, and they create a soul, and that's where a lot of things that happen uh, come from. And what I, the thing about Dobbs is, look, it's not the end of abortion, uh, and it's not going to be the end of abortion for a long time. It'll be more difficult to get an abortion in some of the red states, uh, and they'll, some states will sh shut down abortion altogether, but you'll still be able to travel from state to state and get it. Uh, and there'll be debates, and laws will be changed and amended over time, maybe sometimes made more liberal, sometimes made tighter. And my hope, as I've said a million times, is for a cultural federalism where each of the states will have their own culture, their own moral culture, uh, a, mor a moral fe federalism, a cultural federalism, so that people move to states, not just for economic reasons, but also for moral and cultural reasons. And that will create each state as an example. And the, each state, as an example, will affect the other states. And if states have a family a place where uh, you can't get abortions, but women in crisis pregnancies are well taken care of, maybe that will become a model for other states, and that model will spread, and eventually uh, the whole country will become a, a pro-life country. But that's the way it has to work. It's not going to be by forcing it uh, down people's throat like they tried to do to us, because obviously that can be overturned. What we want is for the culture to change so that people think that killing babies is a bad, a bad idea. Uh, you know, and that, and listen, that has happened before when America was f founded, there weren't any republics like this. And now everybody is really, every free nation is modeled to some extent on America. Even Britain has become more like America, though we learned from them. Now they've learned from us. And as I've, I've mentioned, the, uh, the slave state of the USSR, the Soviet Union, was called the USSR because it was the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics because they had to pretend their slave states were republics because everybody knew that America worked best. And our republic is, is under a lot of pressure. But still, ideas, good ideas can spread just like bad ideas. Now, listen, I think abortion is evil. 
I, I do. I think it's just an evil thing to kill a child, especially to kill a child, uh, an unborn child, because it's going to make your career better or your life better or anything like that. It's, you know, you had the sex, you had the, the baby, you know, take care of the baby or, or give it to someone who will take care of it. But you, you just don't solve your problems by <laughs> killing people. It's just not a good idea. But I, I, I understand there are go- there's going to be evil in the world. And this is the thing. I'm not complacent about this. I mean, I've shown you my heart. You know that it matters to me about the evil in the world. Uh, but, but evil institutions are going to be here. We, every single person on earth lives in a country that has some evil institutions and, of course, some evil uh, evil actions. And that's going to be true until Jesus comes and uh, takes me bodily into heaven and I laugh at all the rest of you who are left behind. Uh, but... You know, and we always talk about fighting the good fight, and the fight is just beginning, and now that uh, Roe is overturned, we begin the fight, and all that is true. But the fact is, we are going to be walking through a world with evil in it until we die. That is just the fact. Uh, And as hard as we fight, uh, as much as, you know, we always talk about, you know, we have to fight. But the truth is, if you speak the truth and try to, to do right, uh, the fight will come to you. Whether you. Don't worry about it. Just speaking the truth will get you in a fight. Just living well will get you in a fight because the wicked will seek you out. They will seek you out to harm you. And so that's what life looks like in this broken world. And no matter what we do, that is going to continue. So why does Dobbs matter at all? You might say, well, what, if it's just going to continue, why does Dobbs matter at all? And yes, of course, it's because it means we can fight. But it has to do with the culture for me. This is why I was so rocked by this decision that I couldn't even allow myself to hope for. Jeremy, the God King, and I had had several discussions where we said we can't even think that this actually, even after it was leaked, that this act, this actual decision will come down. And I didn't think it. I wasn't going to allow myself because I just couldn't have borne the disappointment. But this is why I was so rocked. There is a difference between being in a country where evil things happen, which is every country, and being in a country where the highest court in the land, the highest authority on the law, says you have a right to do that evil thing. When you say you have a right to do an evil thing, it means that you have dehumanized the people to whom you do that evil. Okay, that's a very different thing. You know, it's uh, they always make the comparison between Roe v. Wade and Dred Scott, and I think it's a totally valid comparison. That's the decision about four years before the Civil War that an African American was not an American and could not become an American and have the citizen rights of an American. So in other words, even if a slave escaped, he wasn't free because he wasn't an American. It basically dehumanized these people. So before that, you had this grave evil of slavery, and that is one thing, and that's a bad thing, but we walk in a world with evil in it. And on the after Dred Scott, you had a country that said, we have the right to hold slaves. These people are not fully people, and therefore we have a right to, to hold slaves. It was, until Roe, it was the worst decision. The Supreme Court, 7-2, just like Roe. And, you know, uh, on this backstage live we did at Ryman, I, I was jokingly uh, remembering this video I did of Satan as the, as running Planned Parenthood. And at the end of this, the God King, Jeremy, uh, did his Oscar-worthy performance as a baby running away from Satan. <laughs> and Satan is saying, come back here, you lump of cells, you. And the baby in Jeremy's great voice, it really is a great performance, Jeremy is going, you know, of course I'm a human being, look at me. Of course I'm a human being, look at me. Those words... Those words are the foundation of the golden rule. It's the ability you have to turn to your neighbor and saying, look at me, I am you, I am one of us. We are all human beings. We are all here in the image of God. You cannot do to me what you're doing. When you declare that you have a right, 
a right to hold a slave, a right to have an abortion, a right to tell a Jew to get out of town or to strip him of his rights. Whatever it is that you do, whenever you have a right to evil, you are declaring the people that you do that to unhuman. They no longer have that right to say, I am a human being, look at me, the foundation of the golden rule. And when you deprive somebody of humanity, when the highest court in the land or the highest body in the land, legal body in the land, deprives a a group of people of their humanity, you're no longer living in a country that is doing evil. You're living in a country that is evil. And this is what weighed on me so heavily. And my friends here at The Daily Wire, especially Ben and Jeremy and and Knowles, they have heard me talk about this and they've seen, I think, that how it, it was a burden to me that I did not think that this was a good country anymore, you know, that this country was becoming a bad country because all the stuff that you see that that follows out of that logic of being able to dehumanize someone by right, by right, take away their humanity by right, all of that was making us worse and worse. And that culture, the logic of that culture flows, uh, all of the stuff, the shout your abortion stuff, the, uh, you know, have an abortion 10 minutes uh, before a baby is born, uh, you know, leave a baby who survives abortion to starve. And all of that it led to this stuff, this transgender madness of butchering children on the basis of a theory that has no scientific backing whatsoever and no logic. The political violence, where if somebody disagrees with you, you're allowed to blow up his house or, or uh, uh, torment his family or shout at him when he goes out uh, to dinner. All of that stuff is the habit, the habit of dehumanization that grows out of a, a decision like Roe v. Wade. And that is the difference between this country that saddens me. It saddens me that to live in a world where evil exists. You know, I'm a tragic, I have a tragic sense of life. I always have had, I have a, a sense of sorrow all the time about this, but that's different. That is the world God has given us to live in. Uh, and we have created through our, our fall and our sin that's different than saying we have a right to that evil instead of we should be repenting uh, for that evil. A country with abortion is different than a country with a right to an abortion, just like a country with slavery, even though it has that evil and it is different from a country with a right to, to slavery. I love this country. I love this country like people love their mothers. This country is my mother. This country shaped me in every way. It gave me, uh, you know, I'm a, a quirky, eccentric artist guy. It gave me a right to be that guy, to find Christ without saying, oh, I'm, you know, based, I, I started in this uh, Jewish culture. I have to remain in this Jewish culture. To be the, fully the person I am, this country gave all those things to me. It is not something that I seized for myself. It's something generations of people died for. I want this country to have at least a chance to be good, to climb out of the degradation that a right to an abortion gave us. And now we have that chance. Now we have that chance. And every day we are less evil than we were. Right now, we're a country again with evil in it, which is sad because the world is sad, but we are not an evil country anymore. It really, in the one week, in one moment, all of that changed. I felt it in the moment. I believe it as I sit here before you. This country is a better country than it was last week. It's no longer an evil country, essentially. And it means we can begin to climb back to being a good and great country and recover some of our humanity and some of our common sense. All right, my vacation is coming up. I hope yours is too, and summer is busy. And if you're going to be away from home, 
you can rest easy with the protection of Ring Alarm. And I know what you're saying. You say, what? Ring Alarm? Ring is a video doorbell that lets me talk to anybody who comes to my door no matter where I am. But Ring Alarm is an award-winning home security system with available professional monitoring when you subscribe. And best of all, you can easily install it yourself. Ring didn't stop there. They've changed the home security game with Ring Alarm Pro. Ring Alarm Pro is a next-level security system. CNET calls Ring Alarm Pro a giant leap for home security. Ring combined a home security system with a Wi-Fi router, so this thing helps protect your home and secure your network. With a Ring Protect Pro subscription, it's an amazing deal. You can get professional monitoring for the ultimate peace of mind. If anything happens, the monitoring will call you and can request emergency services. Ring Protect Pro subscription. You may not have known it, but it's true. Ring has an award-winning alarm and this busy summer season to protect your home. You should go pro with Ring Alarm Pro. To learn more, go to ring.com forward slash Claven. That's ring.com forward slash Claven. Anyone rings your ring doorbell, ask him how to spell Claven, and if he knows, the alarm goes off. So I want to do something just a little bit different, brief segment. Uh, you know, we talk. I've talked about why I think Roe v. Wade made this country less than it was. It was actually instituted an evil that touched all of us instead of just the people who were doing the evil that made us all responsible for who we were and who we were in this country and was very uh, saddening to me. It was a burden. You know, I felt it. I felt it because I felt this country is so important and so great uh, and should be also good uh, that uh, it, it was I could see it expanding, and I want to talk a little bit about the mechanism, how that works. I mean, obviously, when you do something evil or when you are uh, in in an evil situation, you're degraded by it, and it makes it uh, an effort to get back your humanity, and it means you have to experience some shame and some guilt and some penitence, and all of that stuff is difficult, and it's actually easier uh, to say, well, it wasn't really e- evil. In fact, it was great. In fact, it was great. You know, you sort of keep moving down that road until really uh, you become, uh, you know, satanic in some ways. And now, when I talk about Satan, I, you know, I over the years, I have come to believe uh, in what we will call Satan, a conscious force of evil uh, that is against humanity. Uh, I in the, In this spiritual realm, but you don't have to believe in that. You can just believe that man's uh, psychology is such that he is self-destructive. And the way that self-destruction works almost always is it, it tempts you by telling you it's going to make you stronger and freer, and it always ultimately makes you weaker and enslaved. So it tells you this drug is going to enlighten you. You're going to take a hallucinogen and you're going to see the face of God. Or this cocaine is going to mean you can really, really work harder and stay awake and you can get a hundred things on your mind is sharper and everything's going to be better. Or it tells you, you know, you're not, you're not bound by traditional morals. You're bigger than that. You're a bit, you know, you're not this kind of phony stuff where, you know, there's these traditions and morals. You don't have to do that. You're you. You're you. You're free of all that. You know, you, you, you know, promiscuity makes you, makes you equal with men, ladies. Promiscuity makes you equal with men. This porn, you know, people tell you about porn, but porn is just part of life. Porn isn't, you got to have your porn, man. You know, and, and or this, this being cruel to someone, uh, you know, that makes you strong. The other people are cruel, so you got to be cruel. That makes you, it always is telling you that you're going to be stronger and freer. I hear a lot of people on Twitter now, uh, interestingly, uh, say, 
not just on Twitter, in all kinds of social media, I hear people saying, I don't care what anyone thinks of me. I believe in abortion rights, you know, or, or something like that. And I think, really, you don't care what anyone thinks of you? Uh, because I don't care what powerful think people think of me if they are people I don't respect. I mean, I had this problem in Hollywood. I have it still. You know, I don't care what people think of me if I don't respect them because of the way they behave. But I care a lot about what the people I love and respect think of me because that that is feedback that I really want. Watching uh, some of these some of these demonstrations that are taking place in the wake of Roe, I played that first one in the opening. Uh, that woman, if you could, if you're watching it uh, on on YouTube or on uh, you know the the site, you'll see her eyes are just like gone. It's demonry, and some of these protests look like demonry. They look like people who have succumbed to that temptation and are now somehow gone. There was one in D.C. the other day uh, where they were actually shouting "Hail Satan!" Take a look at this. And you'll notice uh, the girl is essentially bare-breasted. She's got some kind of paint on her breast, but uh, and and is is twerking at the people. And that's her. You ever do? You, does that ever? Do you ever ask yourself why women do that? I mean, it really is a really interesting thing. I mean, even women uh, I admire, like the women who stand up to Putin, frequently show up bare-breasted. Uh, and and there's a famous picture of Putin uh, looking at these women and with his thumbs up, like you know, nice nice breasts, ladies. Uh, and he said later, you know, I enjoyed that protest very much. And and so it doesn't seem to me that that actually is powerful. So why do why do these women, leftist women, think that uh, shaking their their backsides or bearing their breasts is actually a powerful protest? It really makes you wonder. I mean, if you look back, there's the legend of Lady Godiva, but that's very different. The the, the legend of Lady Godiva is that she was fighting uh, for lower taxes taxes and lower rents for the poor. And she was begging her husband to lower his taxes. He was a big lord or something. Uh, and he was he was charging people too much. And he said, yeah, if it matters so much, you ride naked through town uh, and then I'll lower the taxes. Uh, and of course she did. But the point of that story is he was saying, if it matters so much to you, you should sacrifice something of great value to you namely your modesty. If you sacrifice your modesty, then I'll believe that you really care about the poor and I will lower the taxes. And she ordered all the doors and windows shut in the town before she did it. And the one guy who looked, the famous Peeping Tom, that's where we get the, uh, the name Peeping Tom, it was struck dead uh, by, by looking at her. Uh, so she had this modesty. Does that look like, did that woman look like that was modesty to you? I don't think so. I think what they're demonstrating is that, that, propensity of evil to make you think that your weakness is your strength. And it's like, it's as if Satan had whispered in their ears, uh, you're not bound by modesty. You're not bound by your morals. You're going to show people that their morals don't matter to you, that you don't care what they think of you. And it's the power of their nakedness, which I think young women are taught uh, is the only real power they have. That if they are having sex with a lot of men, or if they don't care about the fact that they're having sex, they're now as powerful as men because they don't have that uh, dependency on getting that worry about getting pregnant. But of course, it's, it's just not true because women are made to attach more emotional connection uh, to sex than men do uh, for the very reason that it, <laughs> it makes evolutionary sense, but it also makes spiritual uh, sense. And, and you know, I, I was once researching a, uh, 
a, a ghost story I wanted to write about a private school and not knowing anything about a private school. I interviewed uh, a guy who ran a private school and I said, what's the difference between this school now and a school that I might have gone to or my son might have gone to because he went to private school? And he said, the difference now is that that thing where men are trying to get sex and women are deciding who gets it is gone. Uh, everybody is just having sex. It's just something they do, like smoking a cigarette. Uh, and, and you notice that women are depressed. I mean, every single uh, poll of women finds out that they are unhappy and they grow unhappier by the day. And people, leftists, hide the unhappiness. Psychologists who point out the unhappiness of women get fired from their jobs, especially at universities. Um, and, and so <laughs> think this just means that you're now in a position where you have to say, you know, I feel bad about myself and what I'm doing. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. I'm going to give up this power. You know, uh, now I'm convinced that it's powerful, but I'm going to give it up because I'm so unhappy and stop and work my way back to a, f a sense of my humanity. And people do not want to do that. And this works with logic, too. I mean, you start out by saying that abortion should be safe, legal and rare. And listen to what Anna Navarro was saying. I think this was on CNN. This is an amazing thing. This is her argument, her impassioned theoretically, emotionally powerful, uh, theoretically moral argument for why uh, overturning Roe v. Wade is such a bad thing. Even though, by the way, remember, Roe v. Wade, does, overturning Dobbs does not get rid of abortion. It just means you got to make the case. This is Ana Navarro making the case. I have a brother who's 57 and has the mental and motor skills of a one-year-old. And I know what that means financially, emotionally, physically for a family. And I know not all families can do it. And I have a step-granddaughter who was born with Down syndrome. And you know what? It is very difficult in Florida to get services. It is not as easy as it sounds on paper. And I've got another, another step-grandson who is uh, very autistic, who has autism, and it is incredible. And, I've, and their mothers and, and people who are in that society, who are in that community, will tell you that they've considered suicide because that's how difficult it is to get help because that's how lonely they feel, because they can't get other jobs, because they have financial issues, because the care that they're able to give their other children suffers. And so why can I be Catholic and still think this is a wrong decision? Because I'm American. I'm Catholic inside the church. I'm Catholic when it comes to me. But there's a lot of Americans who are not Catholic and are not Christian and are not Baptist. And you have no damn right to tell them what they should do with their bodies. Nobody does. So, so her argument is that she has a lot of relatives who are, uh, you know, handicapped, uh, and it's really hard. And uh, you know, she doesn't want that to happen to other people. Well, you know, the left is always accusing us of being Nazis. I don't know why. I mean, I'm so in favor of freedom and and the Constitution. I don't know where the argument that I'm a Nazi comes from, but they they call you Nazi. So I know they won't mind if I read uh, from the Holocaust Encyclopedia that says. The euthanasia program uh, was the systematic murder of institutionalized patients with disabilities in Germany. It predated the genocide of European Jewry, uh, the Holocaust, by approximately two years following the logic, right? That was that stage on the logic. Um, the program was one, you know, you start out, you get rid of the people who are uh, you know, handicapped, uh, and then you move on to the people you don't like because you've dehumanized them. Uh, the program was one of many radical eugenic measures which aimed to restore the racial integrity of the German nation. It aimed to eliminate what eugenicists and their supporters considered. I always love this phrase, if you love corruption and evil because it, it makes you laugh in depression, uh, you'll love this phrase. They wanted to get rid of it because it was life unworthy of life. 
Who but a guy wearing a swastika can, can judge better of whether life is unworthy of life? Uh, those individuals who they believe because of severe psychiatric, neurological, or physical disabilities, the things that Ana Navarro was talking about and with her relatives, uh, represented both a genetic and a financial burden on German society and the state. Now, I'm not calling Ana Navarro a Nazi. I'm simply pointing out that idea leads to idea. And once you are faced with the choice of looking in the mirror and saying, oh my God, what have I become? You don't, it's not that easy to do. Nobody wants to do that. So they just go on to the next idea, the next step on the idea. It's if it's not evil, then it must be good. And they go on. Uh, you know, we, we play so much crazy stuff from TikTok. We love here playing, you know, from libs of TikTok and stuff where we get these crazy, crazy people saying crazy things. Here is a sane lady on TikTok. Her name is Michelle Rhodes. And here's what she said to Democrats about uh, Roe v. Wade when she could have supported abortion. Here's why she said, thinks it was overturned. You know who the left should blame for the overturning of Roe versus Wade? Not the Supreme Court, not Christians, not conservatives, not Republicans, not pro-lifers. The only ones they should be blaming are themselves. It is 100% their fault Roe got overturned. A lot of people, myself included at one point in time, could sympathize with the scared teenager, with the drug addict who had no business bringing a baby into this world. We could understand that we didn't like it, we didn't agree with it, but we could at least understand it. We went from safe, legal, and rare to up to the moment of birth. We gave you an inch, and you took a mile. We drew the line when you decided that you should be able to murder a fully formed infant up to the moment it exits your body. You have no one to blame but yourselves. <laughs> you know, and that's, she's tracing the logic, how the logic plays out. Not the logic of abortion necessarily, not the logic of abortion necessarily, the logic of a right to abortion. This is what I'm, I'm saying. The logic of a right to an abortion strips that baby who already has no voice, strips them of even other people's right to speak up for them because they're no longer human. If you have a right to kill someone, that person can't be fully human, right? So when I stand up and I say, you know, you shouldn't have an abortion, it's like, I don't have that right to say that anymore because you have a right. It's, it's your right to do it. And that's the way you finally get to what I know you're, we're going to get to as we go forward, and I think it's going to work for in, in our favor because people will hear it, and people do have a heart, and people there is a God, and they, that God lives in us, and people will hear these arguments. But this is from the nation, right? This is a big left-wing uh, um, left magazine, left-wing journal uh, by a woman named Sophie Lewis. Uh, who's a feminist. She wrote a book with the subtitle Feminism Against Family. <laughs> Feminism Against the Family. And here's her article headlined, Abortion Evolves Killing and That's Okay. To be, <laughs> be pro-choice is to be against forced life. And it begins with a description of uh, pregnancy as a hyperinvasive placenta puts the gestator at risk of lethal hemorrhage. Locked down, our body becomes a daredevil participant in a wrestling match. This is forced labor, she said. I'm thinking as I'm reading this of uh, Candace Owens, who was on, uh, who we got to see in nine months pregnant. She was so beautiful. I mean, she walked on. I, I could see all the men go, whoa, she's so beautiful. Uh, nine months pregnant, uh, and it's a beautiful thing to see. And I always feel seeing pregnant women on the streets is a very beautiful thing. Uh, but this is forced labor for, for her. And she says, we humans do 
kill when necessary. Victims of assault sometimes kill in self-defense. What's wrong with you? This This is the argument. Targets of persecution sometimes kill for justice or just to reduce the number of their persecutors. And the colonized sometimes kill for liberation. Mothers living in unspeakable conditions have been documented to kill their children as an act of mercy. So why not kill somebody if you want a Hollywood career, I guess, is the end of that. Of course, it ends with that. So that's the way, you know, it sounds extreme. It sounds like, oh, well, that's, she's just an extremist. But we know how this works. The extreme becomes mainstream overnight. We've seen it again and again, and it's getting faster and faster because that's the way it works too. That's the way, you know, when you're going downhill, it starts slow, but it ends up at going at high speeds. So now we're saying, oh, you can end racism by being racist. You can end sexism by butchering your boy so he becomes a girl. So now you get killing the infirm is okay. And if you don't think so, you're Hitler. If you don't want to be Hitler, you're Hitler. Uh, And by the way, let me show you your breasts. Well, you know, what could possibly be degrading about that? That's how it works. When you do anything in life, there's a one way to do it, and then maybe there's a smarter way. You might already be investing in cryptocurrency, but did you know you can trade Bitcoin, Ethereum, and over 80 other cryptocurrencies in a tax-advantaged IRA? With an Alto Crypto IRA, you can trade crypto like Bitcoin and avoid or defer the taxes. Get into investing in crypto and do it in a tax-advantaged retirement account. Alto's Crypto IRA is the easy way to get crypto into an IRA. Trade all you want without the tax headache. Create an account in just a few minutes and invest with as little as 10 bucks and no setup charges. Get secure trading 24-7 through Alto's integration with Coinbase. There are 150 plus coins available, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Cardano. Plus, there are multiple ways to fund your account, make a cash contribution, transfer cash from an existing IRA, or roll over an old 401k. Open an Alto Crypto IRA account with just as little as 10 bucks. Just go to altoira.com slash Andrew. That's A-L-T-O-I-R-A.com slash Andrew. Start investing in cryptocurrency today. Go to altoira.com slash Andrew. So talk about following logic. I have to, I, I know I, I don't like doing it, but I have to talk about Jan- the January 6th hearings in the House because they reached a point of high comedy that just appeals to my kind of uh, mordant sense of humor. Um, you know, they have found now a, a lot of uh, evidence of people demanding uh, that the election, demanding on January 6th that the election not be certified. Uh, here's a clip of that as cut 16. I have an objection because 10 of the 29 electoral votes cast by Florida were cast by electors not lawfully certified. I object to the votes from the state of Wisconsin, which were not, should not be legally certified. No debate. Or reg- Mr. President, I object to the certificate from the state of Georgia on the grounds that the electoral votes no, were no not... Debate. There's no debate. And I object to the certificate uh, from the state of North Carolina. I object to the 15 votes from the state of North Carolina. Um, I object. I object to the certificate from the state of Alabama. The electors were not lawfully certified. I'm sorry, that was January 6, 2017. Those are the Democrats uh, trying to overturn uh, the election of Donald Trump. But the point about the Trump Republicans, of course, is that they, they called for demonstrations and it, you know, attempted to undermine our institutions. Uh, so here's a clip of, of that happening. This is cut two. There is a war out there, and we need to recognize that we've got to armor up. I got the pitchforks, you get the gas and the torches. The hell with the Supreme Court. We will defy them. We have to build streets. Right now, elections are not enough. Get angry! This far-right racist, uh, 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 sexist Supreme Court that made this decision based upon politics. This court 
has lost legitimacy. They have burned whatever legitimacy they may still have had. This is a crisis of legitimacy. This decision is delegitimizing the Supreme Court. Who is Clarence Thomas? <laughs> I'm sorry. That was, I, you know, I, I can't get the guys in the in the uh, booth to work this stuff right. That was the Democrats uh, after the Dobbs decision. And you know, by the way, this delegitimizing the court is not legitimate. Is it going to become legitimate again when they get what they want and they want that to be enforced if they're going to defy the court and call this? You know, uh, Justice Breyer, who just retired, uh, you know, he wrote a book in which he said, you know, once you start questioning the legitimacy of the court, you're not going to get the rule of law obeyed. The rule of law is not an a la carte menu. You've got to order the whole meal. And so what they're doing is very dangerous and very wrong. Let's go to the actual January 6th, because this was uh, unbelievably funny for me, I I thought. They had the star witnesses, Cassidy Hutchison, who was uh, uh, a top aide, they say, to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. And she was, you know, worked for Steve Scalise and for uh, Ted Cruz, so she's a a conservative. And she came on, and she was going to deliver. This was going to be the earth-shattering testimony. And and she had this one thing where she said this about Donald Trump. He wanted to go to the to the demonstration, but his Secret Service driver wouldn't take him there. Is cut nine. The president said something to the effect of, "I'm the effing president. Take me up to the Capitol now." To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel and Mr. When Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. <laughs> this was like, they're doing all this heavy lifting. You know, the media is doing all this heavy lifting. They say, this is a, a, the story of the century. Our grandchildren's children, grand, our grandchildren's grandchildren will remember the day where they were. You know, even though they weren't born, they'll remember where they were when this woman testified. My pal Mike Duran of the Hudson Institute tweeted. First of all, she was saying she heard this. She didn't, she didn't see this. She was told that this happened. My friend Mike Duran tweeted, I heard that too. I also heard that just before this fight, Trump ripped off his shirt, revealing his new chest tattoo, live free or die. His nipples formed the dots on the eyes. Then he downed a jar of cheese whiz, insisting it was tiger blood and saying it made him invincible. So within minutes, I, the, the hilarious part of this is they're telling us, oh, you know, Trump was strangling the Secret Service agent. Within minutes, the the networks, the networks were saying that the Secret Service had called them, the people involved had called them sources, they said, but it was obviously the sources who were involved and saying, nah, that, 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 I'm sorry, that didn't happen. Other parts of her testimony were torn to pieces. But, you know, <laughs> so what they did was they just immediately went from that to some other testimony she had, just a complete self-own, just be, be clowning of this uh, Committee, which, by the way, this is really bothering me. It, bo- it bothers me that on the right, even at uh, Brett Baer, who I love on Fox News, are giving some kind of credence to this. This is a trial. Megyn Kelly, I was on the Megyn Kelly show the other day, and she she brilliantly made this point. This is a trial without a defense. It is illegitimate 
per se. It is illegitimate in and of itself. There is no but after that sentence. I just, in the Wall Street Journal and Fox News, they're saying, well, yeah, there's, it's a show trial, but, and you're gonna, and no, I'm sorry, after it's a show trial, there's a period in the English language. There is no but after it's a show trial. It is a show trial. And so, they, you know, so what, what are they saying that actually plays out? Well, you know, we know that, that Trump, I, I think, acted irresponsibly. Uh, he didn't come out quickly enough and to stop the violence. But here's, here's the thing that got me about this. The lady went on to say this about uh, Trump and Pe- Mike Pence, who was certifying, as, as Biden was, by the way, in that first video I played, Biden was certifying the election and refusing to take the objections of his fellow Democrats. And Mike Pence refused to not certify the election, even though Trump was pressuring him. Uh, and this is what she said about that. It is cut eight. I remember Pat saying something to the effect of, Mark, we need to do something more. They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. To which Pat said something, this is effing crazy. So here's... Here's the thing. Now, we know this is true. We know that Trump, uh, you know, they were shouting, hang Mike Pence. We know that Trump was sending out a tweet saying that Pence didn't have the courage to do what he should have done. Um, but let's, so let's take their logic for a second. Let's take the Democrats' logic for a second, because this is why I think this thing, this January 6th thing is going to blow up in their face. Let's say everything they say is true. Let's say Donald Trump was strangling Secret Service agents and he was forcing this thing. And let's say Trump was like carrying guns, you know, arming the people and and basically uh, trying to storm the Capitol. What stopped them from succeeding? Mike Pence. What stopped them from succeeding? Bill Barr. What stopped them? You know, the the uh, uh, the chief of staff, uh, uh, Pence's chief of staff, Mark Short, all of these people. Didn't, wouldn't do it because they were devout Christians who believed in the language of the Constitution. All of them. I mean, Pence is everything they hate. Until, until yesterday, until like 10 minutes ago, Mike Pence was everything these people hated. And if their scenario is correct, if the worst of their scenario is correct, this country was saved by Mike Pence. And I believe Mike Pence did the right thing. There's no power in the Constitution for the vice president to just overturn uh, the election like that. That's ridiculous. So I, I believe Mike Pence acted with integrity. He probably, I don't know if he ever had any chance of becoming president, but he doesn't now probably because of acting with integrity. But he did it because he's a devout Christian. All the things that the left laughed at him about, uh, that he doesn't cheat on his wife, that he is careful not to go out with women in a place where he might be tempted uh, or you know even look like he might cheat or anything like that. All of the stuff that he did, his loyalty to the president, which is how he conceived, you know, people would call him a toady and all that. He just conceived of the vice presidency as a, a position where you have to be loyal to the president. Most people do uh, see it that way. We're not living in the old days when they were elected separately. They were elected in a ticket. Uh, everything they hated about him Saved the country under their scenario. What did they do to save the country? What did they do? They inspired riots. You know, they inspired uh, riots after uh, the killing of a, you know, the, the bad killing, the reckless killing of a, of a drug-addicted, violent guy, George Floyd. You know, what did they ever do to save the country? The country was saved by Christian. All the people I mentioned, Bill Barr, devout Christian, uh, all the people who said they wouldn't do Trump's bidding— quoted the Bible. They said, we won't do it because in the Bible, uh, you know, it says, keep faith. Uh, You know, your oaths uh, are to God. I swore to God. One of them said, "I, I took an oath. I took an oath to the Constitution. I took an oath before God. All of the things that they don't believe in saved the country under their script, under their script. And that's why I think this thing 
is just absolutely going to go bluey in their faces if it hasn't already this week. At least, at least they supplied the comedy. So, you know, I never sleep, but some of you, I don't know, you whine, you know that poor sleep can cause weight gain and mood issues, poor mental health and lower productivity. Some reports say sleeping less than six to seven hours per night is linked to reduced white blood cell count. I have no white blood cells because I never sleep that much. White blood cells protect your body against illness and diseases. They fight viruses, bacteria, and more. Not many people realize this, but having a consistent nighttime routine is important. A better tomorrow starts tonight. That's why we're introducing Beam Dream. Beam is one of the world's most innovative functional wellness brands with unique products from everything from sleep to focus. Today, my listeners get a special discount available for Beam's sleep product, Dream Powder, their best-selling hot cocoa. It contains premium ingredients, triple lab tested, and you wake up refreshed. I checked out their ingredients. They are uh, said to help sleep. 98% of people surveyed fall asleep faster when taking Beam Dream, and 99% of people experience better sleep quality. Just mix Beam Dream into hot water or milk. Stir and enjoy before bedtime. If you don't love it, you can get your money back guaranteed for a limited time. You get up to 35% off when you go to beamorganics.com slash Clavin. Use code Clavin at checkout. That's B-E-A-M organics.com slash Clavin and use code Clavin for up to 35%. And as you're sleeping, you can say to yourself, wow, I'm glad I know how to spell Clavin. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. No ease in Clavin. I just make it look this easy. You know, a few years ago, I was asked to record an audiobook of Dinesh D'Souza's uh, Stealing America. And I, I said, yes. My wife said, why would, why would you do that? You don't have to record other people's books. And I said, yeah, but it's Dinesh D'Souza. And he was being persecuted uh, for his good work in, during the Obama administration. I wanted to show that I was not going to d- separate myself from him. He is, of course, a best-selling author and award-winning filmmaker, a host of the Dinesh D'Souza podcast. And his most recent film is the highly entertaining 2000 Mules, uh, very very successful. And uh, he is, I, I saw it and I told you at the time that I really enjoyed it, but I was not convinced that the election was stolen. I knew if I asked Dinesh to come on and answer my objections and other people's objections, he would show up because he is a minch and he is here today. I'm thrilled. Dinesh, it's good to see you. Thank you. Good to see you. And thanks for having me on. Looking forward to this. It is always a pleasure. Yeah. What I, all I'm going to do is I'm just going to, first, I want you to tell us about the film for people who haven't seen it. Uh, and then I'm going to tell you some of the objections and my objections. And, and look, I'm here all the time. You're my guest. I want to hear what you have to say. So I'm just going to let you answer, put the objections in front of you and let you answer them. Uh, and and so people can hear them. And uh, and I and I appreciate, you know, I knew you would show up. Uh, I, I ask people I disagree with to show up all the time. They never do, but I knew you would. Uh, <laughs> So, so tell people the basic plot of the of the film. Yeah, so the film is, um, you know, it's not the normal recycled uh, stuff about election fraud. A lot of people have become sort of hardened to that because they've heard about the anomalies and they've heard about episodic cases of fraud and they um, have questions about why the counting was stopped. And very interestingly, this film, 2000 Meals, is about none of that. Uh, It's about an effort, in a sense, later, which is to say with a year or more than a year to go back and see if this cold case, the cold case being what really happened in the 2020 election, can begin to be solved. Now, I won't claim that I know everything about the 2020 election. I'm not even claiming to have solved the case, but I am claiming to put forward important new evidence that uh, opens the door to solving the case. 
there, there are people who watch the film and they're blown away and they go, you know, can't the Supreme Court take this up and like get Biden out of there? And I'm like, no, that's not how it works. Supreme Court doesn't watch a movie and then go, Biden, you need to pack up and move out of the Oval <laughs> Office. You know, this has to move in stages and it has to move through courts. Uh, legislatures have got to be involved. And, and some of this is about a reckoning about 2020. Some of it is simply about telling the truth. And what I mean by that is it may be that the legal window is closed, right? It may be kind of like a statute of limitations. A guy commits a crime, statute of limitations is passed. But, you know, if there's new DNA evidence later, you still want to know if he did it. So there is a truth-telling aspect to all this. And finally, we obviously want to secure our elections for the future. So if the film is able to point to real problem areas where even if we're not entirely sure what went on, we can see that something is wrong here and we realize that this does need to be fixed. Uh, and so that was really the, the motive that brought this movie forward. I'm relying on the work done by a, a group called True the Vote and in kind of an election intelligence organization, so-called. Uh, and the film, as you know, um, Andrew, presents two types of evidence. They're independent of each other, but they happen to work together. Uh, one is cell phone geo-tracking and the other is surveillance video. Uh, neither is complete by itself, but I think taken together, they offer a pretty interesting picture. And so you basically tracked people who were repeatedly going by places where they could put uh, votes in where they could put in ballots and and then caught them on camera doing that. And there's no question uh, at all in my mind that you caught Democrats being Democrats. Uh, they're an urban party. They have they have machines and they've been cheating on elections since, you know, Adam was a pup, basically. I mean, they've been doing this forever. So let me put forward some of the objections that have been, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, by the way, I have to tell you, your best friends are the people who've been attacking you because most of their arguments I thought were absolutely terrible. And I, I think it's hilarious the way even the Wall Street Journal, a, a paper I basically like, always says, always calls Trump's claims that the election was stolen unfounded. They always say his unfounded claims as if they're afraid somebody might question whether they were. Uh, and, and you get a lot of this too. Obviously, what I think is the weakest objection uh, came from a guy I respect, Bill Barr, uh, and a lot of people have said this, where he said, if you take two million cell phones and figure out where they are physically in a big city like Atlanta or wherever, just by definition, you'll find many hundreds of them have passed by and spent time in the vicinity of these ballot boxes. Uh, what is your answer to that, that these, this geo-tracking of cell phones is just not accurate enough to tell whether somebody has repeatedly gone by these boxes? Well, you can start by applying Bill Barr's logic to January 6th. Uh, Washington, D.C. is a big city. Uh, the Capitol is a fixed location, and we're talking also about fixed locations within the Capitol, the front door and so on. Uh, and there are tons of people milling around the city, right? Uber drivers, people jogging, running, walking, going by the Capitol to and, and so if the technology was such that it could not isolate individuals and say, these guys were not going by the Capitol, they were at the Capitol. And this guy was 20 feet outside the front door, and this guy was approximately 30 feet inside the front door. I mean, we see all this in the charging documents. So the FBI is in fact making those claims. So here you have Bill Barr, he's head of the DOJ. Uh, the DOJ does this geo-tracking all the time. Quite honestly, if you apply his logic, that this is a kind of a voodoo that cannot tell the difference between going by a location and going to a location. It, it just misunderstands what geotracking is. Geotracking is not a snapshot of your phone at a particular location. It is a traveling dot 
that can be worked backward as well as forward. So if somebody were to geotrack me, they would begin by saying, I woke up in, in, in my house, in this room, and then I went to a coffee shop, and then I went to the studio to record my podcast, and then I went and had lunch, and then I came home. So in other words, you can see the to and fro movement of these mules. They aren't just going by a Dropbox, they're typically stopping by a left-wing nonprofit organization. Presumably, that's where they get the ballots. Now, the geotracking can't show you them getting the ballots, but they, it can show you them stopping there. Then they drive their car to a Dropbox. Then they walk to the Dropbox, back to their car, and typically on to the next Dropbox. So geotracking does have that degree of precision. It's not precise to within four inches, but it's precise to within a few feet. And let's remember that these drop boxes are not mailboxes. These boxes are only for ballots. They have no other purpose. And so that's the point, is that if you have someone going to 10 or more drop boxes, it's really difficult to think of an innocent reason to do that. Now, now Barr went on to say that, I, I agree with you about this, by the way. I, I, I thought that that was a weak uh, objection, but... Uh, Barr went on to say that he felt that the photographic evidence that he watched the film and he didn't think the photographic evidence established widespread harvesting. And even if it was harvest, if, if there was ballot harvesting, that can be legal. Uh, people can be voting for their. Now, you don't have a lot of people. You have a couple of you have a couple of pictures in there that are stunning of people in gloves taking pictures of the fact that they're dropping off. Both. I mean, you clearly caught, as I say, you clearly caught Democrats being Democrats. Do you feel that you could have given more evidence? And, and again, by the way, I also agree with you that it's not your job to try the case. Your job is to open questions. Uh, but but was, there, was there a weakness, you think, of, of video evidence? Yes, but I think the weakness, is not, the weakness is not the weakness of the film. It's the weakness of the states that refuse to follow the election rules and install video. So let me talk a little bit about the availability of video, right? So we, we looked at five states, Drew the Vote looked at five different states, and um, in the whole state of Wisconsin, there is no video at all. They, they said they would do it, the rules call for them to do it, they didn't do it. In Philadelphia, there might have been some video, but True the Vote has been unsuccessful so far in obtaining any, typically resistance to the, in, the public information requests and so on. In Michigan, very little video. In Arizona, in Maricopa County, a lot of the cameras were turned off. So very little video from Arizona. Um, and then the one place where there is a, a decent amount of video, Fulton County, uh, and True the Vote, it sounds like they have a tremendous amount of video because they say we have four million minutes of video. But four million minutes of video is not a lot of active video because a lot of that video is just blank. You're looking at, let's say, a whole night. Nothing's really happening. A mule shows up for, you know, 30 seconds. Uh, and so most of the video is like a big nothing. Now, here's the point. In Fulton County, where we have the most video out of 10 drop boxes, the number of drop boxes that has surveillance video is approximately one, one in 10. And so the scenario is this. Uh, it's like a serial killer and he goes to 10 homes and he kills people. And let's just say he leaves his DNA. It could be his human DNA. It could be his cell phones, digital DNA. But only one of the 10 homes has a camera. Now, you happen to know from his cell phone that he got to that home, let's just say Tuesday night at 1 a.m. in the morning. You go to the timestamp on the video, the one place you have the video. Sure enough, on that exact time, he comes right through the door. So the, the video evidence where available completely confirms the cell phone geo tracking. But 
It doesn't make sense to me. It's not reasonable to say, I demand to see this guy at the other locations. Now, if there was surveillance cameras and you didn't see him, that would be a severe limitation of the movie because he's supposed to be there. His cell phone says he's going to be there. Where's the video? But if there's no camera there, not through my fault, but through their fault, then I, I say it's unreasonable to demand it. If we had it, we'd show it. But it is sufficient to say that he we know he was at that location because his phone was there. Now, admittedly, he could say, I gave my phone to my wife and she was there. But that that phone was at that location is really not open to reasonable doubt. Gear up for the great outdoors with Forlo, the brand that's revolutionizing outdoor apparel. Forlo's non-compromised, 100% American-made outdoor apparel protects your body from the elements so that your mind stays focused on the hunt, on the water, or on the trail. Your adventure starts with a solid foundation, which is why Forlo's base layer is designed to provide the comfort and insulation you need to keep going when the temperatures drop. Their uniquely breathable down layer ensures that you stay warm without overheating. And since proper protection goes beyond insulation, the final layer, a waterproof shield, completes the system. From UPF sunblocking material that shields you from harmful rays to polygene technology that masks your scent, Forlow's innovative designs and cutting-edge material ensures that you can focus on the adventure, not the elements. Their commitment to innovation and American craftsmanship will carry you beyond the known and into the unknown where the journey truly begins. Get the most out of your time in the outdoors and go to forlow.com and use code DAILYWIRE for 20% off your purchase. That's forlow.com, code DAILYWIRE. You know, one of the uh, stronger objections, I thought, was that you don't, part of the logic of the film is these people didn't just go to ballot boxes, but they also went to these nonprofit Democrat organizations where you say you assume they got the ballots, but you never named the organizations. Why did you leave that out? That's a very reasonable question. And the answer actually has to do with the nature of films, which you will understand uh, because I'm about to explain it now. The demands on a film are very rigorous, much more so than typically on a book. You can write a book and say, I was walking down the street. I saw these 10 guys. They were doing that. In the movie, in a documentary, if I take my video camera and go out on the street and film people, I need the written signed permission of every one of them to be in the movie. Otherwise, I cannot put that movie in the theater. This is a, a minimal requirement. So in other words, with a film, you need four different types of insurance. And so the lawyers come to us and say, we won't give you the insurance if you don't, A, blur the faces of the mules, which I was vehemently opposed to. In fact, we were even forced to blur the face of a dog um, <laughs> because the dog might lead to the identification of, the, of its owner. And, and number two, you cannot name these organizations, which I was apoplectic about. Now, I can fight these guys and it would have taken me six weeks to do this. But I was like, look, I'm going to release the film. I'm going to let it go. I have the names of the organizations. My book, which comes out in August, is going to name a bunch of them. True the Vote has all their names. They've provided their names to the state of Georgia in a formal report that's been filed. They're willing to provide the names of all these organizations to law enforcement. So it's not as if the names are being withheld. It's just that I had a choice, kind of a prudential choice, put them in the movie and then get it blocked and have to deal with the legal things or just get the movie out, recognizing that I'm not going to be able to reveal this information in the movie, but I will be revealing it shortly. All right. Well, that's that's important that you're going to reveal it shortly. Here's where you lost me, okay? You lost me in the part where you extrapolate from what you have to saying there are enough, this accounts for enough votes to, to say that the election was stolen. And here's the reason this loses me. Uh, I have a friend, Henry Olson, who is, I think, the best uh, numbers guy in the country when it comes to politics. Uh, complete integrity because he loves numbers so much that he would never let his personal opinion get in the way of the numbers. And a conservative, so he's not uh, anti-Trump. He's not a never-Trump or anything like that. He has pointed out that 
the election numbers as they came back were typical. They were typical, even though that there was more people voting because it was a very big election. Uh, for instance, uh, people, candidates usually get some, presidents usually get uh, the, the percentage that correlates with their polling average. And that happened to Trump. He had a low polling average. He always did. Uh, 46%. He got 46.9% of the votes. Uh, things that happened in swing states also happened in non-swing states. So if the Democrats were uh, fiddling around with uh, swing states, uh, the swing states would have been different than the other states, and they weren't. Counties with large numbers of educated, well-to-do white people swung against Trump and blue-collar whites and Latinos either state level or they went toward him. So that was typical. Uh, and, and the same states that Trump lost in 2020 also shifted against the GOP in 2018. So nobody says that Kirsten Sinema stole her election in Arizona, and Arizona shifted against Trump. And his point, and, and ultimately, he looked at, at, at Pennsylvania, which is one of the places you cover, Philadelphia. And Pennsylvania changed its rules illegally, in my opinion, uh, and they opened it up to mail-in votes, which they didn't have before. They didn't have lenient mail-in votes. And yet, there was no big difference between the percentage of mail-in votes in that election and in the election before. You would think that all of this stuff, I mean, the Democrats are crooked, but they're not masterminds. They can't have manipulated the numbers so perfectly that they came out to make perfect sense. And this is the reason I felt that extrapolating from the evidence of corruption that you have, which is evidence of corruption, to say that the election was stolen just didn't fit with the actual numbers. Well, here's the problem. I mean, I've been listening very carefully to what you just said, and I think there's, I heard nothing that is even remotely inconsistent with the movie. And let me, let me say why. Um, if we take our, the evidence of our 2,000 mules, uh, right, we say typically that they went to approximately 40 drop boxes apiece, uh, and they dropped in approximately five illegal votes. We're talking about 380,000 illegal votes, just using that kind of simple off the top of our head math. So let's call it 400,000 or even 500,000 illegal votes. Now, we're talking about an election in which Biden got 80 million and Trump got 75 million. So we're 150 million total votes. So we're not talking about a giant spike in votes. We're talking actually about less than half a percent difference in the overall vote. So it's quite possible that all these patterns held just the way you said. Now, look. If Biden had won these swing states by half a million votes over here, 300,000 votes over there, then this movie would not be able to show. It would not be able to meet what the court calls the but-for test. But for this fraud, would the election have come out differently? But it so happens that a number of these states were extremely close. So Georgia was decided by 12,000 votes, Arizona 11,000, and Wisconsin 20,000. So you don't need a lot of mules to change that outcome. So I agree, the Democrats were not able to spike the totals in some radical way. They just used their uh, advantage in these cities like Philadelphia to spike the votes a little bit. But as it turned out, that was enough. So um, when I do the math in the movie, as you know, when I, when I do the sort of conservative math, out of the five states, three tip into the Trump column, but two remain in the Biden column. So. I, I think that this is because this was such a close election in the battleground states, the fraud was sufficient to make the difference. It would not have made the difference, say, in California. It would not have made the difference in New York. If the states had larger margins, there's no way that uh, 2,000 mules could 
tip the outcome of the election. So I'm arguing that it so happened that the Democrats cheated a little bit, but they cheated in the right places. And that's why it could have made the difference. I, oh, okay. I mean, I just want to put one more thing in front of you because, I, you know, I, I really uh, appreciate your explanations. And I want to just put one more thing is that the places where he lost votes were not in uh, Democrat enclaves like cities. They were in, in suburbs where the white, you know, uh, upper class people lived. And those were not the, like you covered Philly and you covered Atlanta and, and they weren't really there that, that he lost votes. He lost votes in places where, as, as Henry Olson points out, he, they, the Republicans had also lost votes two years before. Uh, no, no, Andrew, but you're, you're totally missing the point. The okay. point is, I mean, I agree that Trump is a controversial Republican in the sense that, you know, he, he, he loses some, as they, what's that famous saying, where you lose some on the turn and you pick some on the straightaway, yeah. you know? So he loses the suburbanites on the turn and he picks up some minorities and some working class on the straightaway. Now, if the movie had tried to somehow jump into that and st disentangle that, it would be a morass. So we're not trying to do that. We're, I agree that he won some and he lost some. And the only question then becomes, what was the proportion of the gains and the losses, right? So I don't try to figure that out. I simply say, let's do something a little different and more precise. Namely, let's not start with these, because what you're describing is a kind of anomaly. And a lot of conservatives, a lot of people alleging fraud were base, basing their view on the assumption Trump must have gained more working class votes and gained more minority votes than he lost suburban votes. I don't even get into that math. I go, I will, I'm agnostic on that. I leave it to the side. I'm only going to, I'm going to start with the mules. I'm going to start with guys whose phones I'm showing you at these locations. I know how often they went to these places and I know approximately how many votes they put in every single time. And I'm going to do the math that way. Then I'm going to make an assumption, which I think is reasonable, and that is that these are illegal votes for Biden. Now, we don't know that with Euclidean certainty because we can't go back and look at the ballot. Right. But these are democratic areas. These are left wing nonprofits. These are mules hired, some of them at least out of Antifa and BLM. Right. And they're cheating to get Biden over the finish line. And who wins the election? Biden. So you put all these factors together. It's reasonable that that's who the votes are for. Now, again, a court is going to demand more than I just said. Sure. But I'm trying to convince a reasonable guy looking at the evidence and, I, and I'm trying to put it to law enforcement to say, look, I want you now to go talk to the mules. Who paid you? Who put you up to this? Where did those organizations get those ballots from? Who funded the whole operation? I mean, these are just logical next steps. And so I would be content if someone said as a skeptic, you know, I'm not convinced by this movie, but I am very interested in talking to these mules, and I think someone should do that. They could disprove the movie. It could be all these mules turn out to be completely innocent characters. Or it could be that they will then, they're part of a cartel and they start ratting out their superiors and their superiors start ratting out their superiors and then we're on to something completely different. So the movie is only the first step in that process. I think that's a totally fair ask. And I do, I do believe that this thing where they say unfounded claims, just as if that was one word, uh, it, it denotes fear. You know, it's, it, makes, it makes them look nervous. Dinesh, it's always great talking to you. You always are an eloquent defender of your position. The film is incredibly entertaining, and you definitely catch Democrats being Democrats, which is amusing in and of itself. <laughs> 2,000 mules. When does the book come out? 
the book comes out at the end of August and the website for the movie is just 2000mules.com. I only mention it because it's, you know, I had to be careful what platforms I could put it on. So this is a movie that's only on uncancelable platforms. Excellent. Excellent. Great to see you, Dinesh. Thanks so much for coming on. Always a pleasure. So if you don't have a date for this 4th of July, it may be because your car's not working. And if your car's not working, it may be because you haven't said rockauto.com. Say it like that, my friend, and it will solve both problems at once. You can get your car working easily, and women just fall down when they hear that rockauto.com. They swoon. They actually swoon. No, women don't swoon anymore. But if you say rockauto.com, why? Because they know that you are smart enough to get your car parts Online, You can shop at rockauto.com for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. They have great, great prices. The catalog is unique. It's really, really easy to use. You can quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brand, specifications, and prices you prefer if you can get all the women out of your way. Because once you say rockauto.com, they know that you know where to get amazing selections for car parts at reliably low prices. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Right, Clavin. You got to write Clavin in there. How did you hear about us? Box so they know I sent you. You got to say K-L-A-V-A-N. And beat your chest, too. That also helps. Well, this week we had our biggest live event of the year, Backstage Live at the Ryman. It was one for the ages. We lit up Nashville with all our announcements, and we dressed up like evil Bond villains the way Klaus Schwab does at one of his creepy World Economic Forums. No, we didn't do that. But, but we celebrated our biggest wins of the year, like What is a Woman, the documentary, and the book, which took the world by storm, and our summer blockbuster, Terror on the Prairie, which brought Gina Carano back in a big, big way. And then we made some earth-shattering announcements, like the launch of Daily Wire Plus, the new streaming service for our fast-growing library of shows, movies, and coming soon, animated and live action kids content. We dropped the news that Jordan Peterson has signed a multi-year deal with Daily Wire Plus, where members will get access to exclusive content, new podcasts, shows, and more. And we also expanded our existence existing relationship with PragerU with the brand new master's program with Dennis Prager coming this fall. And this is only the beginning. There is so much more to come. The time to join is now. Head to dailywireplus.com to become a Daily Wire Plus member and use code PLUS for 35% off your new membership. That's dailywireplus.com today and the code PLUS. If you have seen Terror on the Prairie, and if you haven't, you should, you may have noticed that there was a madman running through the prairie, uh, cutting people's, the tops of people's heads off, scalping people, uh, terrorizing Gina Carano. And that, of course, was the great Nick Searcy, a terrific actor you've probably seen in Castaway and the Oscar-winning Shape of Water. And, of course, in Justified, one of my favorite TV shows ever, uh, and now on Terror on the Prairie. Nick, it's great to see you. Great to be here, Andrew. It's an honor to be in that movie. Uh, It it was really, I have to say, I love the minimalist thing and the no music. It was really intense. And uh, how how did you learn how to scalp someone? That's that's what. (laughs) Is there a special thing? You just do what they say. (laughs) Put this there, put that there, and then lift up on it, and it'll all work. (laughs) They don't have like a technical director come in. No, all right. Right. Uh, Make sure you aren't laughing when you do it. Serious moment. So I'm, I'm always really interested in acting technique and the way people create this, these characters. And you took this character who does nothing through the entire movie but terrorize a woman and her children. And normally when I see a character like that, I'm just waiting for him to get the bullet in the head, you know. 
But, but you actually made this guy a complete human being. You look, reading the script, you think, oh, I play a guy who's terrorizing a woman and children. Where do you begin? How do you get into that character? Well, I've, uh, I've played a lot of bad guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I can't imagine why. I, can't, I started <laughs> out, you know, it's sort of I got my first break was maybe Fried Green Tomatoes, where mm-hmm. I played like a wife-beating Klansman, you know, or whatever. And so <laughs> I played a lot of wife-beating Klansman just, after just that. just the look you have. Just for a know. while. Something yeah. about her, yeah. But, you know, when I was working on Fried Green Tomatoes, I met the great Jessica Tandy. Oh, yeah. And I met her in the bus just one day, had yeah. one exchange with her, and she said, who do you play, dear? And I said, oh, I'm Frank Bennett. And she said, oh, my goodness, the bad guy. Yeah. And I said, well, I don't know. My wife's been cheating on me. I think I got kind of a, an <laughs> argument here. And she said, well, that's the way you have to look at it. <laughs> ah, and so that's really yeah. what it is. It's like people who are bad guys don't think they're bad. Yep. They think they're doing the right thing. Right. So in terror, you know, what I did is I looked for what is the heart of that character? Why, why is he doing what he's doing? Yeah. And it's because they murdered his daughter. Right. Or that's what he, that's how he sees it. Yeah. So he's, he's doing the right thing. He's getting rid of all the people who murdered his innocent little daughter. Yep. So, yeah. so I mean, one of the things that struck me, some, some people, some of our audience obviously complained about the fact that you quote, the evil guy quotes the Bible a lot. But I really like that because I know it's kind of a Hollywood thing that they get, make the bad guy religious. But you played this character as if he were the wreckage of a better person, like mm-hmm. he could have been a better person, but this hatred in his heart. And you're surrounded by these kind of gibbering maniacs, and, and you don't like them either. Did, right. Do you think about that, or do you just find your way to that? Well, no, it definitely was, you know, there's a line in the movie that my character says that always stuck with me, which is, you know, God takes too damn long. You know, and that's that to me, that was the heart of that mm. disconnect. Yeah. He was obviously somebody who knew the moral code, who had lived by it for some of his life, but he lost it. Yeah. When, when, when tragedy happened to him, you know, like happened to Job, and, you know, he was not, he did not react to that right. in the way he was supposed to, the way the Bible tells you you're supposed to. And so that's easy to do. And that's a lot of people do that. And that's what I thought was important about the film is that you can't just go around pretending that there aren't people who misuse and misunderstand Scripture. Right, right. That doesn't make the Scripture bad. Yeah. And so that's, I thought that was a very interesting element to the character. I yeah, think. I mean, it's in the, you know, when Shakespeare says uh, the devil can quote Scripture to his purposes, and in the Bible he actually does. You know, yeah, that actually happens exactly. in the yeah. Gospels. Yeah. So, so you're working with Gina Carano. I only got to meet her yesterday. What a lovely person. I mean, she's just a really nice person. So much fun to work yeah. with. Such a ge- lovely, genuine person. Yeah. And just a real joy to, like, scare to death and terrorize. <laughs> and try to kill her husband in front of her and all that. It was great. I knew you'd enjoy that. I, I, I thought, like, at least Nick is having a good time. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like, you know, the, after Fried Green Tomatoes, I kept getting parts where I beat up women. <laughs> And I got to worrying about it, and I went to my wife at one point and said, why do you think I get all these parts where I beat up women? And Leslie said, well, you don't look like you could beat up a man. <laughs> always, good to, always good to consult your wife so, on these matters. <laughs> yeah. I don't look like I could beat up Gina either. <laughs> well, that's the, that is the thing. She's so nice where she could kill you. you know? <laughs> that's right. It was good I had a gun. Yeah. That's right. I also like the fact in, in the movie there's a lot of shooting and missing, which I think must have happened with those weapons, you know. You bet. Yeah. I mean, that, that's part of it. You know, I heard some people complaining about that. No, no. They were really terrible shots. It's like, well, you know, they weren't. <laughs> 
exactly making Glock nine millimeters in you know, <laughs> yeah. 1875. You know, the, the the machinery. It's like golf clubs back then were bad too. You you can't play with those. You know? <laughs> yeah, the laser. They hadn't got that laser beam. Right. <laughs> so Justified, one of my favorite shows, and and you were terrific in it. And you played a good guy, but there is a scene that I've never forgotten it because it, it made me sit up. I think it was before I even met you, maybe. Yeah. Um, there was a scene in it where you're sitting in a car, you're on stakeout, and you're listening to Rush Limbaugh. And I just remember thinking, how the hell did he get that in there? <laughs> you know? Now, was that you or was that? I'm asking it for a reason. I'm not just asking yeah. Well, you know what it was, was uh, Rush Limbaugh was a big fan of Justified. Ah. And he okay. would talk about it on his show, oh. and, every, you know, I would get excited. And then one day he mentioned me by name on the show. He said, one of my favorite characters came back in the season last night, Nick Searcy, and I'm like, my phone blew up. I'm, <laughs> yes. I'm friends with There's David Limbaugh like on Twitter. I'm like, does he want to talk to me? Does he want me to come on? So I, he, I went on the Rush Limbaugh show. That was back during season four. Okay. And did a 12-minute segment. I was on longer than Dick Cheney. And, uh, <laughs> but anyway, you just, know, he Justified just, was a better show. Right? That's right. <laughs> and so, you know, it just, uh, he talked about how much he liked the show. It wasn't about politics. It was, right. And then um, a couple, after that interview, some of the writers, I was in the van going to the set when one of the writers was there. And he said, you know, we listened to your, your Rush Limbaugh interview in the writer's room. I yeah. said, Oh, did you really? He goes, I said, what'd you think? He said, well, it was pretty good. I said, yeah, I'm bringing back that audience that you guys have been systematically driving away for 40 years. <laughs> and so they wrote, the writers wrote it in. They just wow. said, it makes sense that my character, a marshal in Kentucky, would listen to Rush Limbaugh. So they just put it in. And I told Rush when I talked to him about it, I said, I think that's the first time that you, you're, you've ever been used in a television show where the guy who was listening to you wasn't a bad guy. It was it was <laughs> genuinely startling, and the reason I bring it up is I want to know: Do you think you could that anyone would do that today? No, <laughs> it has Absolutely changed. Absolutely right? not. Yeah. No, yeah. no. It, the, the demonization has gotten worse and worse, yeah. uh, and the, the you know the split in Hollywood has is now I think it's irreparable. Yeah. I mean, I've talked to so many actor friends of mine. I won't say their names, but you know the whole vaccine mandate stuff and how they've you know, made this decree that no one can work on a, on a set as an actor if you aren't vaccinated. Mm -hmm. There's so many people who have really had their eyes opened by that. And you're either on one side or the other on that. You yeah. know, it, it, there's no middle ground there. If someone's telling you, you have to do this or you're not eligible to work in this industry, and the other person says, I don't want to do that, mm. you can't, there's, yeah. no, there's no way back from there. The, the other thing that has happened, and I'm getting this, well, secondhand, but I mean, I, I, one of my best agents uh, retired because his entire stable of writers uh, was out of work because they were white. That's and true. This, this racialism that has come in that is, that's actually mandated by some of the unions and guilds where they say you have to have a certain number. And, and I know people who've had write, black writers assigned to their projects and told he doesn't have to do anything, just put his name on the project, which I find so demeaning and degrading to the, to the black writer. I mean, it's just, yeah. how, how, how do, you, do you still manage? Do you, can you manage? I mean, you're... Uh, well, you know, I think in some ways, it, I've been fortunate in that I was not smart 
enough to realize early on that I should keep my mouth shut. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. <laughs> you know, so I just sort of, oh, by the time I learned it was too late. You know, it's like, okay, I'm already out there. What I'm going to do, you know, renounce my... Uh, right. My, but I think in my case, what happened to me is that some people hire me because of who I am. You know, some people come, you know, and I have relationships with people, artistic relationships yeah. with people who've worked with me before, and they'll bring me back again because they know me and they don't care about the politics. So in some ways, it's been an enhancement for me because I haven't had to work with too many people that hate my guts. Uh-huh. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm, and I've still been able to do quality projects and, and do the things that I want to do. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I'm sent by my agent I read it and I don't want to do it. Mm, I mean, yeah. it's it's either not very challenging or it's just another white racist guy. You know, it's like, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Is I've there, played enough know, Democrats. But <laughs> <laughs> is there really any other kind? Right. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think that it's painful to watch because, first of all, TV has gotten bad, you know, and, and movies have gotten bad. And I think most of it is this woke, woke stuff. You started making your own films, some of them. I mean, is that is that something you want to keep doing? Yeah, yeah, I have been. I mean, you know, we I did Gosnell, which right, he was right. wrote and and directed that. And then the last couple of years, I've been making some documentaries. That uh, during COVID uh, 2020, I made one documentary called "God Shed His Grace on Thee" uh-huh. about the Bible and the Constitution and how they've diverged over the years. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, you know, 2021, I made a film called Capital Punishment about the January 6th uh, uh, event that, uh, in my opinion, has been lied about and uh, trying to correct the record on that. So, th- yeah, that's an aspect of my life that I want to continue doing. I've kind of reached that point in my life where it's like, I don't just want a job. Uh-huh. You know, I don't yep. really need it. I just, I want to do, but I want to do things with people that, you know, I enjoy working with and I want to work on things that are meaningful to me. Right. And so that's really what I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know it's funny. I was thinking of the, all the great things that you were in. I, I actually, Gosnell slipped my mind because <laughs> cause you were great in that too. You played the, the uh, prosecutor in that. Uh, yeah. And- I couldn't get a big star to do that part. So I had to do it myself. <laughs> well, it was good. It was, and it turned out, you know, working with the, what you had, you did a really good job. It turned out very, very well. Yeah. And, you know, I still, people still talk to me, me about that movie. It's yeah. just so, it's so unique. Yeah. It just it was a singular event. Right. You know, that uh, a movie like that, just it's hard to make. Yeah. Uh, hard to get the money and hard to get it distributed because that's, they tried to do, you know, they tried to shut Gosnell down and keep it out of the theaters. Yeah. And the way they do that is they just don't talk about it. Yeah. yeah. There were like 11 reviews of Gosnell. <laughs> and mo- normally a movie gets 200. I know. I we know. got 11. Yeah. No, I, my, my novels went from getting like 300 reviews to one in, in one book. Yeah. Because I can't. Yeah. And that's what's so important about what the Daily Wire is doing, yeah. get, getting into the entertainment business, because distribution has been the, the most difficult thing. That's it. How do you reach the audience if the gatekeepers in Hollywood won't let your content be shown because they disagree with your politics? Right. You've got to build your own. You know, when people who talk to me about this, I get a lot of calls from people who say, I'm going to start a conservative movie-making company, but we're going to go beneath the radar. And I say, the radar goes down to the ground. You're not going beneath anything. And and what you were saying before, that by being outspoken, you have actually found friends as well as lost them. I used to read your Twitter feed, and 
and laugh until I cried. I mean, your Twitter, you just used to just rip people. <laughs> I mean, it was like brutal. <laughs> it's a knife fight. Yeah. I, I, used to, I, was, I would read it like through my fingers, you know, because I hated yeah. to watch the blood. <laughs> was that a strategy or was that just you? you just had <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's a strategy. It was a dumb one. But no, it, it's just me. I mean, and I, I really, it was like, I kept telling people for a long time, my Twitter feed is just like an improv class. I'm just like, I'm just coming up with crazy insults, yeah. you know, and just having some fun. But after a while, you know, it just becomes like, okay, you're, you're showing people, you're, you're, you're exhibiting behavior that like, this is how you stand up to a bully. Yeah. You know, you don't apologize. You make fun of them worse. You right. know, I, I, I argue with people on, on Twitter all the time about, we've got to be better than them. And I go, no, I'm going to be worse. <laughs> I'm going to be worse than they are and see how they like that. <laughs> Now, did people know, in, at what point in, in Hollywood, your, in your career, did people catch on that this was who you were? Was that, like, right away? I mean, did you always, early pictures, did you actually say, you know, well, I'm on another side? Well, it, you know, it, the, the conversation didn't come up as often that's right. when I first started. And so that's what I mean. It's like every time, every once in a while when it came up, I would say what I thought. Yeah. And then I started realizing, oh, that everybody doesn't agree with me. You know, I, thought, I thought I was just saying common sense. Hell, right? <laughs> but yeah, it got worse. I mean, and I think that uh, during the Bush years is when I really noticed that it was a, a real thing. Because when Bush got reelected, I was working on a show and we had a table read the next day. And it was a, it was a comedy. And one of the actors said, you know, thankfully there were a couple other people on the show that felt like I did, so we weren't alone. But we were kind of not rubbing it in, but just sort of, boy, that was great, huh? You know, and there was an actress there who uh, basically said at the table read, I hung my head out the window on the way to work today and said, I wish somebody would assassinate him. And I'm like, you know, that's not really <laughs> legal for you to say that. And there's also a lot of people that agree with that sentiment and they're kind of are called terrorists and, you know. So it's like at that point I realized, okay, this is like some really weird deep-seated hatred, which yeah. I was not expecting. Everything up to that point I thought, well, we have political disagreements, but we don't, we don't want to kill each other, do we? <laughs> yeah, apparently we do. Yeah, yeah, apparently we do. I got to stop there, but it's a great performance in Terror on the Prairie. It really is. And it's only one of the many great performances you've turned in, but it, it's, there's something special about it, the way you got made that man, that horrible person, a person, and it's just an amazing talent. I, I appreciate it. Well, it meant a lot to me, and it was a great, great opportunity, and I'm thankful to Jeremy and Dallas Sonier for, for giving me that op and Gina, who was kind of my champion. I, I, I'm so grateful to them for giving me that opportunity because it was, uh, I felt like finally I've gotten a role where that I can really fulfill and, yeah. and that will fulfill me as well. That was great. Yeah. Nick, it's always great talking to you. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> Thanks great to see you. It's great to see you. Yeah. So July 4th is coming. I hope you all have a great holiday, but I know you won't because it will be part of the Clavenless Week. Uh, fortunately, as you go into that darkness, before you go into that darkness, we will solve all your problems for you with the mailbag. Woo! Get angry! Yeah! <laughs> 
<laughs> we should just do. We should just replace replace her with uh, people screaming, "Get angry!" All right. From Julia, uh, this email contains both a question and a thank you. I'm a 21 year old woman. Uh, over the past few months, I've listened to your videos on the essence of femininity. Uh, I hate feminism, but I still felt pre- pressure to climb the corporate ladder because that is what a strong woman is obliged to do. I felt that something was wrong with me because I liked the idea of having a pretty home and being able to care for a husband and a big family. Because of your videos, I realized that these aspirations are not selfish, but are ingrained into my very being. Your insight has changed my life. Thank you for breaking the last shackles of feminism. Uh, I can now see what you mean that it is a spiritual task to turn a house into a home. My question is, what does it truly mean to be a good, strong woman? Uh, the modern building ro- buildings roman uh, suggests that the climax of a young woman's life, no pun intended, is when she loses her virginity in supposedly pleasurable, aggressive, degrading sex, or when she beats every man in sword fight. What happened to the Margaret Hales, Jane Eyre's, or Elizabeth Bennet's of the world, all uh, female characters in novels? Could you recommend some good novels that showcase the true qualities of a strong woman? Really interesting question. Um, and of course, well, of course, J- um, Jane Eyre is a wonderful novel. It's a great, great, great novel. Uh, but Elizabeth Bennet is one of Jane Austen's uh, characters from Pride and Prejudice. And Jane Austen, uh, who I maintain is the only absolutely top rank female uh, novelist, if you if you put only at the top rank the Charles Dickens and Tolstoys of the world, uh, Jane Austen is the only one who belongs at that rank. Uh, because of producing these books again and again, which is what these a- absolutely great novelists do. Um, and her books are so good because her her women are real. Uh, they're, they're actual real people uh, that you might meet and, and admire and do, and they do find virtue and represent virtue all, all the time. I'm always interested, another, char- another character you might like, although she's more ideal, uh, is um, Esther Summerson from Bleak House. Bleak House is a marvelously entertaining Charles Dickens novel. It's something like 800 pages. I read very slowly. I literally read it in a three-day weekend because I couldn't put it down. Uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful story. Um, and uh, I've been in love with Esther Summerson all my life, uh, and she's a wonderful, uh, ideal woman. Uh, also, uh, a woman who is uh, both strong and virtuous is uh, Minna Harker from Dracula, which is a great novel. I'm going to talk about that with someone in a couple of weeks. We're going to bring on a guest to talk about that novel because I just think it's a, a, a underrated in its literary quality. Um, and Minna Harker and that, uh, you know, modern novels about women. I don't know. I don't really read many women's novels now because I think they're so bad. Uh, but, um, and so dishonest really, but, um, but you know, it, it's interesting to me that twice in your letter, you use the word strong and this thing about a strong woman. And I hear the young women, uh, here uh, use this all the time. It's a strong woman. And I always wonder why is strength, uh, the first quality that you admire, uh, in, a, in a woman, is that really the? Fr- I mean, what, what about what would you do about uh, with like tender or generous or nurturing? Uh, you know, obviously you have to be strong in life. All of us have to be strong in life because there's great tragedy in life, there's great difficulty in life, and you have to weather it and you have to be strong. Uh, but I always I always tell college students when I'm talking to them, if I wanted to marry somebody that strong, I'd have married a guy. You know, <laughs> that's not actually what I'm looking for uh, from my wife. And and I think that the the thing about it is that um, it, you know. The, when, when you say that being a homemaker is a spiritual task, which I truly believe, the world is against all spiritual tasks. The world does not like spiritual tasks. It likes money tasks. It likes, you know, it offers you fame and fortune for doing things 
mediocre, in a mediocre way. Uh, when you look at like the most popular movie, nine times out of ten, it's eh, it's okay. You look at the great movie, it's probably down the line a little bit and more and more as the culture uh, decays. We we see that happening uh, even more, where the great movie is has to be made on a budget or, or a great novel kind of disappears without anybody finding it except this guys like me who hunt for it. Uh, so so you know the the, the corporations don't want you to be a stay-at-home mom. They want you to work for them, and that's why they're paying for abortions now. They say, yeah, we'll get you an abortion. Uh, so, you know, spiritual tasks are always uh, belittled by the world because the world wants you to get in the machine, you know, do what you're going to do. Uh, but, but surely, uh, yeah, I'm not sure that strength is the first thing uh, a woman needs. I think it's that quality of generosity that allows her to put herself into a position where she's not going to get... Uh, rich and famous, but she's only going to get the love of the people she has shaped and formed and created, uh, which is another kind of reward altogether. Um, and, and, you know, if you read, by the way, if you read uh, my book, The Truth and Beauty and the chapter on Frankenstein, I talk a lot about why women are in a particularly difficult position because they have been stripped uh, by machinery of some of the actual economic tasks they had before, which also gave them a role in the economy and in the world while they were doing their important spiritual work. Uh, and that, how I hope that's going to change now with the computer. Um, from Kelly, I agree with you. This is kind of the compliment question. I agree with you that beauty is an essential feminine quality. What do you think is its masculine equivalent, uh, valor or uh, strength? Uh, well, I, I think that, you know, uh, strength in a man or courage in a man is probably courage more than strength. Uh, courage in a man is similar to beauty because it has no moral quality. A beautiful woman uh, can be evil and a courageous man can be evil, but it is essential to be have courage in some way uh, to be a man. It's not essential to be beautiful to be a woman, but it's a great advantage to women to be beautiful. But I think the, the most important thing, I, I think in women... Uh, I look for generosity and tenderness. Those are the things that I think of as feminine uh, qualities. And in men, I look for integrity uh, and the courage to stand by your integrity because courage by itself doesn't mean a, a, a thing uh, unless you're standing by it. What I mean by integrity is to be whole, uh, that you make sense, that when you don't make sense, you correct and make sense, uh, that you are who you seem to be, uh, that you know everybody has a private life and everybody has things that they don't want to talk about about other people, but you should do what you say you're going to do, be uh, who you say you are, uh, and and follow through on on your beliefs, and I think those those are the important things about about men. Um, and obviously, all these things, you know, it's good to be a handsome man. It's good to be a woman of integrity, and all this. But these are essential qualities. Uh, from uh, Jeff, uh, my brother was hit by a drunk driver. Uh, is clinging to life with proverbial white knuckles. Uh, in hopes that you and Jesus will solve all our problems and change our lives, hopefully for the better. Here's a stumper. In Psalm 121, uh, the psalmist says, God will not suffer your foot to be moved. Satan quotes a similar verse to Jesus, that he would not strike his foot against a stone. The Bible has a lot of specific promises of good fortune. However, it's obvious that bad things will happen to both good people and bad people, as Jesus, by the way, says. Um, why do these promises appear in the Bible? Do those who trust in God have better fortune? If my brother lives, is there a reason he survived when others have died from the same thing? Please solve the riddle of sin and death for me. I hope I explained the question adequately. Looking forward to your 100% correct answer. I'm glad you put it with the, that sense of humor. I'm so sorry for your brother. I hope he pulls through. Uh, but, but, you know, that I'm going to solve the problem of sin and death. Whenever I answer questions like this, I always get... Uh, letters from me, always get emails from people who have a definite, why didn't you tell them that Jesus loves them or something, you know? And I, I, I feel in these, in these 
questions uh, the opposite of wisdom is certainty, uh, that these are our mysterious things if we believe in a good God uh, and we have to live a little bit with our doubts in order to have faith and have God in ourselves and in our lives. Uh, but, but still, in reading the Bible, I, I read the Bible uh, as the story of man's relationship to God as told by the Jews who were chosen to tell that story, but who represent everybody in that story. What the Jews do, we all do. The sins they commit, we all commit. The good they do, we all do. And, the, and their relationship with God represents all of our relationships with God. That's why I think that, that when people say, well, well, the Jews killed Christ. No, no, no. There was the Jews representing you uh, in that situation. And, uh, and, and, the, and the Jews who followed Christ also represent you or the possibility of you in that situation. And so what I see is the Bible is a story that's being told. Stories take place in time, and the end of the story, the climax of the story, is, is Jesus. And, and we know that Jesus changes. He rewrites some of the Bible, uh, like the laws on divorce. Uh, so he, we know he's the culmination and meant to be the answer uh, to that, the very question that you're asking. And the answer to that question is life is not all there is. We are living in an eternal uh, uh, paradigm where these things ultimately are true. It is ultimately true that if you follow God, if you have faith, not only will your life probably be better, but that ultimately you will be protected from harm, the, the true harm uh, that doesn't just kill the body, but kills the body and the soul. And so you understand those things in the Old Testament in light, the light of, of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And then they have a different meaning, a bigger meaning, an eternal meaning. And that's what they mean. Because you're right, as Jesus says, the, you know, the rain falls on the good and the bad alike. And that is and that is the truth. Uh, and so those promises are there. Those promises will be kept, but they are kept in a larger uh, in a larger life than we know we have right now. I got to stop there, have a wonderful 4th of July, and then succumb to the Clavenless Week in which we will be destroyed. But if you survive, I'll be back on Friday. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thank you for listening. The Andrew Claven Show is produced by Lisa Bacon, executive producer Jeremy Boring, our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, Production manager, Pavel Wadowski. Editor and associate producer, Danny D'Amico. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. Our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. John Bickley here, Daily Wire Editor-in-Chief. Wake up every morning with our show, Morning Wire, where we bring you all the news that you need to know in 15 minutes or less. Join me and my co-host, Georgia Howe, for daily coverage of all the biggest stories on Morning Wire. 